episode 17 of right we are sitting now i'm on my own again this week i'm afraid and we're gonna have a really short intro and outro this week which is probably best for you guys because you probably just want to hear the interview we have this week um right so the site's been a bit quiet this week that's because we've been doing some stuff behind the scenes um but don't worry we're gonna have all the reviews going back up again this week and uh i'll finally get my lucifer <laughs> comic review put up so scott can get his one up next uh, thanks again to Scott Corelli. Check out his show, geekshow.us. Uh, Two Geeks and Mike in the podcast. Love that show. I was listening to it earlier. Really good. Um, 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 what else have we got coming up? We are going to the London Expo this weekend to shoot some video and also do some interviews. The London Expo is this big kind of... Um, bit like, I guess if you're in America, it's a bit like a sort of mini Dragon Con. You know, we have these kind of people from different kind of geeky cultures coming along and we just want to do a little segment on the show next week about cosplay something that really interests me <laughs> like what motivates these people to uh, dedicate huge amounts of time to uh, dressing up like their favorite comic book character or their uh <laughs> i don't know i just find it all quite interesting so we're going to go along there they're really nice enough to give us some uh, press passes so we're going to get in a bit early and talk to some people and that'll be a nice little change for the show i guess but we'll still have an interview next week in fact, next week's interview is going to be really cool as well. So, but yeah, I'm just uh, waffling a bit here. So we'll just cut to a quick break. And then after that, we'll have Claire uh, with the second Weird Weekly News, which is cool. And I'm really glad we've started to actually get Claire on the show now. Um, but, yeah, see you on the other side. Episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it. That maybe you know this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. So uh, Scott, I've uh, I've kind of decided to become a superhero now. A superhero. Yeah, like, you know, like a full, um, like saving people, burning buildings, pretty ladies, stuff, you know, all that stuff, all that good stuff. Really? Well, what's your superhero name? Um, Awesome Man. Wow. Uh, Don't quit your day job. 
Hey, this is Scott. And this is Ben, and we're your hosts for Two Geeks, a Mike, and a Podcast. The show where we discuss all the latest news and rumors in the entertainment industry, all from a geek's perspective. The only perspective that matters. Join us on the web at geekshow.us. Where we become our friends at MySpace at myspace.com slash two geeks. Two geeks, a mic, and a podcast. We're here to save your day. Hey, this is Claire with the second audio version of the Weekly Weird News. If any of you guys have suggestions, comments, or criticisms, you are more than welcome to send me feedback at claire at sittingnow.co.uk or just leave comments at the bottom of the page. And hopefully this time a lot of you will find these stories a little bit more uplifting than last time. So here we go. The BBC reports that a large study on near-death experiences is soon to be carried out on cardiac arrest survivors. The study coordinated by Southampton University will take about three years and is going to investigate whether people without brain activity or heartbeat can have out-of-body experiences. Head of the study, Dr. Sam Parnia, says, If you can demonstrate that consciousness continues after the brain switches off, it allows for the possibility that the consciousness is a separate entity. Three men this week were involved in stealing over $11,000 worth of bras from Tory Secret. While two of them were shoveling them into a bag, the third man tripped the alarm as a distraction and apologized to employees for wandering off too far with the merchandise. Since it's probably not too likely that the men were stealing for their own personal use, though we don't know for sure, police speculate that they are being sold at a black lingerie market. Australia's other favorite marsupial might soon be extinct in just 10 years. Researchers say that the Tasmanian devils are plagued with a facial cancer that their bodies simply don't recognize. Zoos are being turned to for breeding while scientists are working on a vaccine to prevent the cancer. LiveScience.com says researchers hold that stress doesn't only affect humans, animals feel it too. Animals are said to become stressed by rapid change to a new environment, unfriendly relationships with other animals, usually in the household, and even by picking up stress from their caretakers. The effects of stress are quite similar to those found in humans, such as a release of adrenaline and cortisol hormones that increase heart rate and respiration and suppress the immune system. Research has also found that it works against the reproductive system and creates risk for cardiovascular disease. Sorry about that. And like humans, animals are said to seek out comfort food while stressed. Next up, The Guardian reports that ministers are saying criminals and terrorists use free networking social sites, such as Facebook, to hide their communications. The police say that these social communication sites and new wireless gaming consoles are huge impediments to safety. The English government is now creating plans to intercept and gather personal data within the confines of these services. New legislation is to be proposed as a plan for international cooperation since many of these sites are based abroad. A graduate from Asheville High School in Virginia has changed her name to CutOutDissection.com to protest the act. Former Jennifer Thornburg interns with People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, and says that while she has to repeat herself in introductions, her name generally grabs immediate attention and people are curious for more information about the site or the cause. In Ferndale, Michigan, a 20-year-old student threw water on his teacher because he had suspicions about her being a witch. Threats came in when he was dissatisfied by Arthur Miller's The Crucible. Detective Denmark said that the student also had a lighter and wished to, quote, burn the witch. Snow has been detected falling from Martian clouds by NASA's Phoenix Lander. The findings suggest that liquid water may have been present in the past, but unfortunately, not only did the snow not turn into rain, but it vaporized before reaching the ground. The good news for hopeful scientists, though, is that interplanetary Earthling probe droid has found signs of calcium carbonate and clay near the poles, which both, on Earth at least, form in the presence of water. In more news regarding Mars, scientists have found that there is a new possibility that a massive asteroid might have killed Mars' chances of evolving into an Earth-like planet by, quote, 
punching a hole into the crust so large that it damaged the red planet's magnetic field. And according to scientists, just in case you're curious, outer space smells like fried steak, hot metal, and welding a motorbike. For more information and links, be sure to check out the text version of the Weekly Weird News on sittingnow.co.uk. Claire Lumiere there with the Weekly Weird News, a great new feature to the site, we're really enjoying it. Our interview today is with Austin Gandhi. Now, some of the listeners that have migrated to our show from Out There Radio will definitely know who this guy is. Um, he's the magical mind behind the Invisible College. Um, he's incredibly well-versed in not only the history of magic, the practice of magic, but he's well-versed in getting what magic is across to people, I think, personally. And I think you're really going to enjoy the show if it's something, if magic's something you're interested in, especially if you you find the whole subject quite daunting. I find that Austin has this great way of explaining it to people um, with a certain clarity that is, can be lacking. I mean, we've been really lucky with our guests. I mean, Lon Myler Duquette and Taylor Elwood have both been really, really good, at, and uh, and Raymond actually have both been really good at kind of describing their fields of magic whereas Austin's great at kind of holistically explaining magic I'd say. Our featured music this week is from Kid 606 it's an older track but I really like it it's called The Illness it's the album mix. Uh, it's on Ipecac Records but you can download the track um, once again from Southern Records who have been our constant <laughs> constant supplier of mp3s for the last few episodes so uh, but yeah I mean it's a great track you like I said go to the Southern website look up Kid 606 um, and you'll find the track on there. I'll stick a link in the show notes as well. But so let's uh, let's roll to the interview of Austin Gandhi. Hi, Austin Gandhi. Welcome to the show. It's nice to finally have you on. It's good to be here again. People that listen to your other show probably know a little bit about you, but for people that listen to mine and don't really know who you are, could you give us a bit of a kind of biography? A bit of a biography. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> I, I currently reside in Athens, Georgia, a secret uh, hotbed of occult activity in uh, <laughs> in northeast Georgia, um, and uh, I've been practicing and, and pursuing my interest in the occult for a good many years now. Um, I really got into it as a coping mechanism in high school. I'll, I'd like to talk about that kind of thing, uh, uh, how people get into the occult. Um, but uh, I got into it as a, a coping mechanism, uh, a coping mechanism uh, countering feelings of powerlessness and helplessness in the world. Um, and uh, later on discovered that there's a lot more to the study of the occult and magic than mere self-gratification. Um, I've been involved with uh, student groups on campus uh, interested in alternative religious orientations and the study of Western esoteric- esotericism. Um, and have been involved with them for almost... 10 years now, um, and try to be just a general uh, ontological misfit, and uh, I'm very gratified to have an avenue of discussing these things online and with you, Ken. Yeah, that's great. It's good to have you on. Um, so I guess what we're going to talk about today is magic in the kind of uh, in its most basic sense, I guess. We're going to look at the kind of components of magic, the uh, the different uses of it, and the, uh, the kind of tools you might use. And um, so I guess... But the best way to start it, I mean, we've had a couple of guests on and spoken about this before, is what is magic to you, at least? Because it seems to be different to every person I ask. And that's a very common uh, reaction when people pursue an interest. I think there's a there's a great deal of just base level interest in the, the uh, mainstream culture in some of the things that magic is specifically oriented towards investigating. Um, it's almost 
a cliche these days. Um, these these things are tropes that are very common. Um, the idea of angelic uh, guardians or of extraterrestrial experiences or of psychic powers or past life regression or out-of-body experiences. And all of these things are aspects and facets of a much older tradition that extends back to the beginning of human history. And that's the study of those invisible forces, um, the discipline of which we, uh, for the lack of a better or more um, descriptive term, uh, call magic. I guess another way of putting the question is, would you say that magic is supernatural or is it not? Because this is something that always comes up. Is like, is this a supernatural thing? I mean, when we look at Crowley, he kind of contradicts himself all the time where he says, yeah, it is supernatural. Then he says, no, it isn't. And you have people like Israel Regardi that say, no, it's just psychological kind of processes. And I mean, this, what's your take on, on that kind of end of it? That's a fantastic question. I think it all comes down to the definition of our terms. I think by most people's classifications, um, and definitions of the terms supernatural and natural, uh, many of the things that magic purports to be able to accomplish or the, the higher goals that many people pursue uh, seem to be definitely supernatural in that they are outside of a certain conventional perspective on what uh, the natural world is composed of. Um, people tend to think of it as kind of a um, having cheat codes for the, uh, for the system um, and uh, able to break certain natural laws, but um, depending on your definition, and, and many definitions are contradictory uh, within themselves, um, I think magic could be viewed as pursuing uh, uh, knowledge and mastery over natural laws, which are simply not um, not routinely perceived or recognized, and the attempt to investigate the depth of human experience to unlock um, and to come to an understanding of what actually is possible and kind of piercing through a certain cultural framework which defines the way we view the natural and supernatural worlds breaking through that um, ultimately arbitrary and um, there's there's very little consensus between worldviews on what is or is not possible and magic i think uh, tries to be transcendent of that hmm. um, so in response to your question i think um, i think we can definitely say that it's never as simple as just supernatural or natural I think it's trying to delve a little deeper than those artificial distinctions. Yeah. I mean, uh, our last guest last week was uh, James Randi. I, I hear you're a really big fan of him. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his work debunking charlatans and um, <clears throat> evangelical misfits who try to cheat the poor and the gullible out of their hard-earned money. Um, and I give ultimate and absolute respect uh, to the man for that. Uh, huge Huge fan of that work. Um, <laughs> however, um, James Randi, I think, is a, a fantastic example of how people can mistake the boundaries of their area of knowledge for the boundaries of the universe, uh, <laughs> of possible experience. Um, yeah. Uh, he's, he's a very uh, strong archetype in, in our modern world of the, um, the hierophant, the, the man who, um, who has had a, a very... Uh, comprehensive experience of um, a world of science, a materialistic and um, and mechanistic uh, view of the world, and is highly skeptical of claims that fall outside of that domain. He's informed by a single worldview, but I feel uh, somewhat limited in his um, openness to alternative interpretations. Yeah, I, I mean, generally, yeah, I, I agree with what you just said there. I, I, I think that 
also I'd say actually that magic is kind of one of those like I said to him in the interview is that um it's kind of an internalized thing and you know he likes the the idea of testing everything you know and how can you really test something that's internalized and I I don't know I just find the whole thing a bit I don't know <laughs> yeah and many people have tried to kind of um bring uh, magic back into a scientific um, approach, which I think is actually very valuable. I mean, once upon a time, um, magic was not, there was no clear line distinguishing it from science. Um, there, many of our sciences, obviously, uh, the, the classic chemistry from alchemy um, example, um, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of blurring <laughs> of the edges um, between um, the magician's work and the work of the scientist and the um, the engineer and uh, the herbalist and the the doctor and of course the psychologist. All of these fields were kind of unified. Mm-hmm. Um, and today, I think there's a an idea put forth largely by Crowley and and his followers that there there is a science to it. Um, it is a matter of testing and um, having experiential knowledge of what the actual um, potential powers of magic and your own potential experience is. Um, but just because there's a method that is similar to science or, or identical to the method that science uses, I think there are domains that are particular to magic um, that fall outside of the, the purview of other areas of knowledge. It's not, a, it's, not a, a, it's not a knowledge system like mathematics or chemistry or law or any of these um, arenas of human knowledge. I think it's something uh, more primordial and ultimately uh, began before language. Okay, so I'm a complete noob, you know, noob, that's a bad word. I'm a complete beginner to, to magic. Go to the bookshop and I see all these books on the wall. The guy behind the counter is not very helpful. He's quite patronizing, this often happens. But if I want a definition of magic and the kind of techniques, where do I start? Honestly, I think uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter where you start. Um, it, it just matters that one one begins. Um, because if one is, is wandering into that occult uh, section of the bookstore. Um, one is uh, pursuing an interest that I think is um, kind of the birthright of human beings, this idea that you can know yourself in a deep and powerful way and that that knowledge can have an influence over the world. Um, and so your your interest is a starting place enough. And if you're the least bit discerning and, and have a certain uh, skeptical flair to balance that desire to know and that desire to believe, um, I think just picking up the the first book that comes to your that 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 hits your eyes will be um, instructive at the very least. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one of the the big tasks of people who are interested in getting into magic is um, acquiring a knowledge base, um, and that's a long process. Um, a lot of people like to think that you can you can really just you know what it's all it's all good. Whatever you believe is going to work as long as you believe it. Um, but that's easier said than done, mm-hmm. and often takes many years of kind of uh, saturating your mind with the symbolism and the techniques and the the theories that have informed uh, magical practitioners for centuries Mm -hmm. um, and kind of breaking the spell um, on yourself, basically, um, of uh, the the illusion of a consensus reality and kind of um, grasping out into this unknown, this um, kind of anxiety-causing arena of, of human experience, which so few people actually manage to, to delve into in their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really the first step. And obviously there are some books that are considered classics that I would not hesitate for an instant to suggest to people. Um, but more important than 
finding the right book to start. It's it's finding the right perspective on the subject matter that's really going to decide how far you're going to go. Yeah. I mean, um, okay, so that's a good sign. But I mean, but one thing I guess we should mention as well is that I think a lot of people expect magic to work straight away, don't they? (laughs) They can pick up a book and, you know, conjure a spell or whatever. And, uh, you know, that's it. It's done. They're in. But it, mm-hmm. our pop, our pop culture is uh, it loves to present magic in this very overblown special effects laden kind of way, um, where um, all it takes is finding the right um, dark tome in the attic, and it'll it'll unlock a gate to the abyss, or or um, maybe maybe like in Charmed, you'll you'll suddenly find uh, four adolescent girls who will help you perform some kind of uh, dread invocation after which you, you can shoot lightning bolts out of your fingers or, or what have you. Um, there's this, this image presented of magic as this, um, this game changer um, for the way um, you can uh, have influence over your own life. And it's, it's kind of this wish fulfillment um, that we're, we're looking for in magic that you know nothing else seems to be going right in my life. Maybe I can... Um, pursue this this avenue this shortcut to power and control over myself and my world um which is not to say that magic doesn't work and not to say that it doesn't work right off the bat in fact i think some people can be very alarmed by the degree to which they can just get up and go Mm. um but it's never exactly how we how we expect it to be no I, I personally kind of completely gave up when I found out that there weren't four young girls that, you know, could teach me how to fire out of my hands. I found that really disappointing. <laughs> but no, um, I guess we should uh, start looking at some of the kind of the definitions, I guess, of, I mean, the classics high versus low magic. How would you uh, define the two? Or yeah, differ- I think, um, differentiate, yeah, I there, there are lots of <laughs> classical distinctions uh, put out there, um, kind of separating the field of magic into into different arenas. Um and the idea of high versus low magic is a very recent idea, a very, um, I'd call it a Protestant um, philosophical and moral framework placed on a body of, um, of human knowledge and, and power and experience that is about as moral as um, uh, engineering or electrical engineering. Um, so uh, the point there, I, I think people distinguish between high magic and low magic or theurgy and thaumaturgy or white magic or black magic to kind of give themselves a um, a comfortable moral ground on which to approach a field that's that as well in the pop culture is presented as very dangerous um, and the high magic low magic distinction I think comes from this idea that there are there are things which you can do in the world um, which are um, good for yourself and good for others in this very um, transcendental and um, uh, fearful of of one's own power kind of way Um, and that people who are in it just for self-aggrandizement and and material control and material power are somehow bad Um, which says a lot uh, for the way we view uh, power in our society it's something that that you're supposed to at least pretend to not be interested in uh, your own power over your your mind and your world Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think those distinctions are artifacts of um, a, a broader um, social moral system, which I don't think necessarily applies. No. All right. Okay. We've got that sorted. So um, I guess the next thing we want to look at is, I guess, 
we'll have a quick rundown of the uh, the techniques of magic um and we'll just kind of pick about four or five different techniques because there's quite a few <laughs> but if we go um i think like the first one to start on really is banishing um and this is something that uh is uh you know a, a quite a big technique in magic i guess uh in terms of its popularity yes and and i think that came out of the uh the turn of the century um turn of the last century um there was a a Western esoteric group called the uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and um, they were a, a society of, um, well, they were founded by a Freemasonic fraternity, um, <clears throat> attempting to kind of grasp the Hermetic secrets and to, to help each other study and learn. And it became its own thing, its own attempt to kind of uh, concentrate the magical uh, techniques of all ages into a large, um, somewhat Judeo-Christian, um, but deeply influenced by Egyptian and and uh, Greco-Roman mystery cult kind of tradition, mm-hmm. and bringing together astrology and tarot and geomancy and the summoning of spirits and the invocation of gods all into one big system. Mm-hmm. And you had to spend uh, quite, a, quite a lot of time um, in the system before one was viewed as being um, spiritually qualified to actually perform magic um, in the way that we generally think of it, uh, to cast spells, for lack of a better word, to create talismans. Um, one had to spend a, a good deal of time going through these um, these initiations and grades where one was uh, taught the symbolic language of magic. Um, but the very first thing you learn um, is uh, a ritual that you you are um, is enjoined uh, to perform uh, very often, which is a banishing ritual. And it kind of was uh, the training wheels um, for this particular system of magic. And for a very long time after that order was dissolved, it was a very popular technique, um, so much so that 30 years ago there wasn't a Wiccan uh, walking the earth that hadn't at least <laughs> heard of the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. Yeah. And it became very integrated and people wrote their own, a Wiccan ritual of the pentagram or a, uh, a Norse uh, ritual of the pentagram or what have you. And always rehashing the same basic structure and kind of uh, proliferating the idea that banishment was the... Uh, the basis, the thing that you always do first, mm. which, um, given that many of the energies um, that one is supposed to be able to invoke and call into one's circle with magic, um, can be somewhat psychologically disorienting or maybe even physically disorienting, um, it seems like a decent place to start. Um, but I think it's it's often viewed as the backbone of a. Um, regular magical practice that as long as one is performing this what ultimately amounts to a a training exercise often enough one is being a magician Mm. which is patently false yeah i know a lot of uh fraternities kind of almost insist that one has to do this uh you know the pentagram ritual at least maybe once a day (laughs) it seems to be this year yeah yeah, it's uh it seems it's quite a important starting block for a lot of these groups um, I guess the next one, well, next two, I should I should say, I suppose, are um, invocation and evocation, and there's a bit of a difference between the two. So, could you explain those differences for us? True, true. Uh, the the differences are once again, I think, uh, somewhat um, it, not quite as new as the ideas of high or low magic, um, but it's still a relatively new concept um, that kind of evolved as our um, theologies changed um, over time. I think. It, um, the basic idea between evocation and invocation is in in the first one, in evocation, one is summoning a spirit to do one's bidding, uh, which is a very basic idea in magical systems across the globe. 
the idea that there are these invisible forces that are um, active in the world and manifestations of certain natural forces and to enter into a relationship with them is to have control over that aspect of the world. Hmm. Now, the idea of invocation is that one is doing a very similar thing, entering into a communication with a god, um, which ultimately boils down to the idea that there are, um, the distinction appears to be, uh, when you break it down that way, that there are small spirits and there are large spirits. And one you treat one way and the others you treat a very different way. Um, and there are a variety of theoretical frameworks that can explain that, oh, well, the, the spirits are kind of incomplete and... Uh, more elemental, and the gods are more transcendent and moral. But once again, these are these are distinctions that are informed more by a philosophical framework than by a magical one. And I don't think there's any hard and fast distinction between working with a spirit, which can be very big and very powerful and very uh, impressive when it happens, um, and the idea of working with a god, which you'll, you'll see in many um, devotional um, magical practices, um, such as the, the rituals of Wicca, um, very often one can uh, perform an invocation with very little um, impressive effect. Mm. Um, and so I think, I think ultimately it's drawing a line in the sand that may not reflect anything objective about spiritual realities, if that term can even be applied to them. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think people tend to view them as distinct, um, distinct arenas of magical endeavor, when I don't think there's such a strong distinction. No. Okay, well, I guess the uh, the next one we should hop along to is um, astral travel or astral projection, it's often known as. Uh, there seems to be different avenues with this as well. Uh, again, I guess this is a cultural thing as well, but what is astral travel? What is astral travel, indeed? Um, and astral travel is a, is a fantastic example of how a magical technique can evolve over time. Um, it's arguably one of the oldest magical techniques um, in anthropology. Um, uh, people have studied for, for decades now um, this phenomenon which appears to um, come up in many tribal societies where there is a member of the tribe who has special access to invisible realms where he can enter into a trance um, and the shaman can leave his body and experience this invisible world and deal with spirits on their home ground, um, kind of enter into that. Um, that symbolic realm. Mm -hmm. um, and this this appears in many traditions uh, across the face of the earth um, and appears to have evolved somewhat independently in them. Um, so it seems to be something that human beings believe um, or have a tendency to believe that they are capable of doing, of leaving their physical body, body behind. Um, and then over time, there have been different um, attempts to evolve this technology in, to fit our new world um, frameworks. And so as we move out of this animistic, um, magical worldview, which informs many early hunter-gatherer kind of perspectives on the world and moving into more structured or hierarchical or religious frameworks, um, the technique of astral projection um, evolves as well and becomes um, kind of this uh, process of the contemplation of God or the movement through different hermetic spheres um, or these, uh, these meditations on the aspects or qualities of God. Um, and then in the modern age, kind of had a revival after the spiritualists and in the theosophical movement and in the later Golden Dawn movement, um, this idea that astral travel is a technique that can be used to understand um, the, uh, the theoretical frameworks of, um, of your magical pr uh, path and connects 
uh, dovetails very smoothly with certain psychological uh, models of internal experience. And so astral travel also becomes this journey into the self and into the, the symbolic world of the, the personal, the individual. Um, and then even more recently, we have techniques like um, uh, remote viewing and the, and the uh, current fad of the out-of-body experience, which are all describing the same basic phenomenon of leaving the confines of the, the human body or at least the, human, um, the, the limitations of the human nervous system and attempting to acquire knowledge about the world, invisible or visible, um, through other means. Yeah. <clears throat> I was just looking... Um... <laughs> I mean, up here. I was just looking down a list of the different uh, techniques of magic, and I may pronounce this one wrong. Is it Eucharist? Well, yeah, you, Eucharist. Eucharist. I've, that's one I've not really come across <laughs> before. Uh, maybe I've heard it, you know, described in a different way. But what is Eucharist? Eucharist. Um, well, that's a that's an interesting one to show up. I'm curious what list you're looking at. Um, <laughs> that that is that is an, an aspect of um, of magic, I suppose, um, but also. Um, of ritual activity in general the eucharist of course uh, coming out of um, the catholic conception of yeah i was um, wondering if it was something to do with that <laughs> oh yeah absolutely um mm. and and i'd say that um <clears throat> though the the term magic may not be one that um many catholics would embrace when um, discussing the ritual components of the mass for instance um when we look at what is supposed to be happening in the catholic mass the transmutation of a physical object into a spiritual substance and then the transference of the qualities of that spiritual substance to the people gathered there um, that looks a lot like the techniques of magic of creating a talisman um, in, imbuing a material object with certain spiritual qualities and expecting those spiritual qualities to have an effect on the world or at least on the individual. It would be hard to draw a very strong distinction between those things. Hmm. Um, but in many magical traditions, there's a very similar process of um, not necessarily creating a talisman that one would wear um, or, uh, or a magical tool that one would use within other rituals, but instead of um, consecrating and imbuing with those spiritual qualities an object which is um, imbibed or eaten hmm. um, and uh, hoping, I suppose, that the spiritual qualities that one is attempting to manifest in oneself can be concentrated into this material object that one is going to actually physically consume and make a part of oneself, hmm. um, which is a very basic idea of, um, I think, uh, human symbolic framework that we, we look at the things that we take into our bodies as becoming a, a, a literal part of ourselves. And so if it's a material thing, then we're, we're merely nourishing ourselves. But if there's some spiritual aspect to what we are, we are consuming and taking into ourselves, then we are taking on those aspects as well. And that, that is a technique of magic for sure, which is shared by many religious traditions. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting um, when you talk to, say, a Catholic or you know someone of a more mainstream religion, um, and you mentioned things like this to them as, you know, also <clears throat> containing, I guess, kind of magical properties. They kind of tend to freak out a bit and no more than, no more, sorry, <laughs> the next technique is the one that uh, really tends to freak them out if you say that it's an occult practice, which is uh, yoga. But though yoga tends to be a, yeah, the version of yoga we see on early morning breakfast television <laughs> isn't necessarily the type of yoga a magician would practice, is it? That's true. That's true. Um, there is a, a huge fad these days. It's one of those one of those occult techniques that has just kind of slipped slipped on through the door of um, of uh, consensus realities filters, um, I suppose, because it seems so innocuous. Um, but yes, yoga um, 
in its inception was was viewed as this holistic system that a a spiritual seeker would take on and it you know instead of um, just being the the stretchy kind of yoga that we see on early morning television um, that was only one of eight aspects mm. um, to this um, whole life transformation that yoga was supposed to encompass which involved um, dietary um, yoga um, the learning how to breathe correctly learning how to behave correctly in society um, learning how to worship one's God correctly these were all paths that um, the yogi would pursue um, and just the the early morning stretching is is a very small component of a large system which is meant to take one as it were all the way to enlightenment um, and any one of those eight paths is supposed to be a potential avenue but I think even that aspect of it the spiritual aspect is downplayed in our Western perspective of what yoga is and we focus on the things that are important to us in our society which is physical longevity physical health we are we are terrified of um, losing our vitality and our our youth and so we focus on the aspects of yoga that can help us uh, forestall those things and we ignore the aspects that we don't necessarily consider as valuable although at the end of the day when you um, look at, at yoga as a whole it seems to be a way of not just preserving physical health and longevity but also of pursuing a, a kind of spiritual health um, but I think that aspect has played down a great deal. You, talk, you spoke about the eight pathways. Um, could you go into that a bit more for us? I'd love to. Um, I, I'm not a. I'm not an expert on on yoga, um, <laughs> but I'd. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly um, uh, encourage people to investigate the the other eight limbs. There's um, obviously there's the the yoga that we see um, where people are learning a certain mastery of their body through these poses and these stretchings and these these openings of um, the the boundaries of the physical body. Um, uh, but there's, there's also, of course, the, the classic in magic, I think, that, that um, many people kind of get into is the, the hatha yoga or the prana. Um, mm. I should say the prana yoga, um, which is this idea that there's a, a vital energy um, that is activated by the breath. Um, and there's a, a lot of um, investigation um, given by magicians into the, the powers of breathing and controlled breathing. Uh, and how it can influence one's state of mind, um, how it can create an altered state which can be transcendental or can an induce um, kind of, uh, I guess, spiritual attitudes. Um, and I think that's, that's one that people um, could readily embrace, uh, which really opens some of the doors of meditation and um, classical mysticism, um, opens those doors into the um, largely physical domain that um, Western yoga seems to occupy right now is by understanding that the breath is kind of a bridge um, between the mental uh, realm and the mental states and the bodily uh, sensations um, that yoga is uh, currently so fixated on. Um, I think learning that yoga is not just about um, one aspect of, um, of your life, but actually about mm -hmm. uh, mastering um, any aspect of it, of yoking yourself to the system. Um, and pursuing it in every way and in all things, um, whether it's just sitting around or talking to people um, or engaging in charitable acts, everything can be a form of yoga, a form of kind of um, yoking oneself to this, um, this system which is meant to lead you um, step by step to higher realms. Yeah, I know that um, in the 60s, especially uh, with people like Timothy Leary and even Robert Anton Wilson, they were hugely um, kind of, uh, they kind of championed pranayama uh, is it pranayama yoga 
Is that what it's mm. called? Yeah, and it's, they kind of spoke about breathing through three nostrils and all this sort of thing, and uh, you know, kind of like opening, using it almost as like a kind of substitute for LSD in some ways. Yeah, absolutely, mm. and and I think one of the revelations that the psychedelic movement kind of snuck in was this idea that um, while um, this this chemo gnostic idea of using um, psychedelics or other drugs to achieve altered states of consciousness that are transcendental, um, I think the revelation that it uh, kind of snuck in through the door that many people don't still don't realize um, is that these things are natural experiences that the body can produce on its own hmm. and connects those um, natural experiences to the religious traditions and the magical traditions of all ages um, that people have been inducing psychedelic states uh, since the beginning of time and sometimes it's been through the use of these um, naturally occurring substances or manufactured substances in the case hmm. of LSD um, to achieve those states, but also that there is an inherent quality in the human mind which appears to be able to access these things. Mm -hmm. And pranayama is one of the, um, I guess, most powerful um, uh, long-term studies on how to um, consciously bring about those changes in consciousness by consciously changing one's breathing. Mm. Is this something you've ever uh, tried out yourself? <laughs> Oh yeah. Um, uh, if you if you doubt for an instant that uh, breathing can affect uh, can affect the experience that you have of reality, um, the classic technique of uh, the yoga, the the breath of fire technique, is um, is very very potent, very easy to do, and basically involves hyperventilating yourself um, into kind of a, a head rush. And while many people may view that as kind of base or silly, that one is just breathing oneself until one gets dizzy. Um, the idea is that um, different states can be brought about by different forms of breathing and that kind of excited or dizzy or um, uh, elevated um, mental state can be brought around just by over oxygenating the brain. Hmm. Um, that's just one of the basic demonstrations of how powerful um, just controlling your breathing can be. Yeah, excellent. Well, before we move uh, away from the uh, the techniques of magic, more towards the kind of practice, I guess, of magic, the uh, you know the uh, the components, I guess. Um, the last thing I really want to kind of talk about is divination, and people often think of it as divine in for water or something like that when they see it on a bookshelf. I know that I, um, someone saw it on my bookshelf and thought I was divine in for water, and they were completely wrong. I'm sure there's another name for it as well, but. Uh, mm. This is certainly not what divination is in, in the terms of, uh, of magic, is it? Well, uh, I, I would say divining for water certainly um, could be viewed as an aspect of, of the greater um, subset of magic that is divination. Mm. Um, it seems to be, um, at least in some ways, accessing uh, mental qualities, which allows one to detect um, things in the world that one would normally not expect to be able to. Um, but there may be other explanations for i guess divining uh, for water <laughs> um but divination is a fantastic um realm because i think that's that's one of the uh, one of the major stresses that um people have especially in the western world is this anxiety about the future um and in our in our modern world where the future shifts so drastically within a decade i think that uh, anxiety is becoming greater and greater and so you have um, psychic telephone lines that you can call to have somebody assure you that your future is in fact laid out and that it will follow a good path or if not a good path at least some path at all which I think is is reassuring in itself um, but divination is it's one of those things that just by the very nature of, of the way we we worry about the future I think it's one of those um, 
those aspects that the magician has always um, accomplished for his society. Um, the role he has always played has been kind of this um, this prophet figure, this um, this figure who is uh, capable of discerning the subtle influences that are giving rise to events as they occur. And he presents the image of being knowledgeable about, well, what, what goes into any given event coming about and the mastery of the understanding of those invisible forces, which give rise to the, the manifest and the visible present, um, I think is a, a huge aspect of magic. Um, and so divination in all of its different aspects, there are as many forms of divination as there are tools at your disposal. Um, people have divined with the, by the flight of birds. They have divined by the movement of the stars, um, by the entrails of a goat, by laying down tarot cards. And all of these are mantic arts which appear to be a way of activating um, a certain quality of the human mind which um, finds order in small things um, and extends that order out onto a larger world. And that's one of the basic precepts of magic is that um, there's a certain fractal or holographic aspect to it that the patterns which emerge on small scales or on large scales will be repeated in the inverse. Hmm. Now you brought it up earlier, actually, which is uh, tarot. Um, now this is another thing that comes into the uh, into the magical world quite hugely, and especially in, within certain fraternities and you know orders. Uh, we won't go into it too heavily today because this is something I would like to do, you know, an entire show on because it's quite a big subject, oh, yeah. I guess. But uh, briefly, I mean, if you go to a, like we were saying earlier, you're, you know, a starter, I guess, and uh, you go to a uh, an occult bookshop or something, and you look at the the tower of tarot cards, as I like to call it, whenever you go in, where do you even start? I mean, like, is there a, a um, you know, like a particular deck you recommend, or does someone just need to find their own deck, or how would you uh, go about explaining that to <laughs> our listeners? There, there are a lot of funny urban legends, even in the magical community, about how you should find a tarot deck or whether it's bad luck to buy one or whether it should be a gift from somebody else, um, which seems um, kind of like shooting yourself in the foot, waiting on somebody to yeah. get you a Christmas present. Um, but um, tarot um, is, is a fantastic uh, tool um, that only really became, um, that we can only clearly see coming into the magical practice once again around the turn of the last century um, when um, the Golden Dawn magicians, um, heavily um, influenced by uh, the, the French occultist Alphonse Louise Constant, um, <laughs> or Eliphas Lévy. Um, That's a great name. <laughs> it, um, so pompous. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, he kind of integrated um, the idea of the tarot and its trumps as um, he integrated that with the idea of the Hebrew Kabbalah, um, this um, system of um, self-knowledge which led um, on a long pathway towards the knowledge of God, um, kind of integrated the tarot as a theoretical construct for mapping out one's progress um, along the, the, um, the Kabbalistic uh, tree of life, this diagram of reality. And this became absolutely huge for occultists of that century this idea that these tarot cards this base uh, fortune telling system um could be used for higher magic for ritual magic or as a form of meditation um this is very exciting um and today like you said i mean the the fascination with the tarot has led to thousands of permutations on this basic um tarot deck that they were looking at in the in in the in the beginning of this kind of just rustic um, collection of um, archetypal symbolism. 
Um, and now if you're into cat people, you can buy the tarot of the cat people. Or if you're into um, James Bond uh, themed tarot uh, readings, you can you can buy that. Or if you're a big fan of the alien movie, you can buy H.R. Geiger's <laughs> tarot deck, though I don't suggest doing readings with it. Um, <laughs> but um, the question is, you know, where do you start? And, and in divination, um, I think because divination is such a fundamental aspect of understanding how invisible forces give rise to manifestation and to uh, visible and physical events, um, and that is such a huge aspect of the magician's work, um, any divination art um, can be useful, and one should definitely pursue at least um, some interest in that if one is into magic. Um, but it doesn't really, at the end of the day, matter which deck you pick up or if you even pick up a tarot deck. Um, the Norse runes, um, which were, once again, within the last century, kind of integrated into um, magical practice, um, or the uh, the yarrow sticks or the, the coins of the I Ching, the, uh, the traditional Chinese classic of divination. Um, any of these systems can help one kind of pierce through the the holographic fractal nature of the universe and kind of start to understand how the mind can create meaning out of apparent chaos and how that meaning can actually be a reflection of apparent events in the world. So it doesn't matter where you start as long as you start and are relatively consistent uh, with one system. One can break the idea. The ultimate goal is to break through the tarot, break through the runes, mm. and see what's beyond. Well, I know if you go to my local uh, a cult shop, they uh, a cult shop, new age shop, I guess. Uh, they uh, they they strongly recommend you stay away from the thoth deck, apparently. And then they the say, uh, <laughs> oh, "A shame." Um, one of the one of the loveliest pieces of occult artwork mm. um, ever created, and people are saying to. To, to keep away from it. That's, that's because sad. they're trying to sell you the Salvador Dali deck, which is twice as expensive, <laughs> it seems, and in that one. And beautiful. But, uh, yes, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, that, the Thoth deck has numerous urban legends that have kind of arisen in the occult community as well. Um, I certainly hope it's not cursed. I own two copies of yeah, it. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking at one right now. So. Um, but it was, um, it's this gorgeous um, art piece um, that is also an incredible occult tool that was uh, the paintings by, were by Lady Frida Harris um, who was a collaborator of Aleister Crowley's and a student of his um, and they're done in this fantastic uh, vivid kind of cubist style um, but they're also packed full of symbolism in a way that many tarot decks are, tarot decks are not hmm. um, many of the, the Golden Dawn themed tarots um, uh, tarot decks that have arisen are actually very bland in comparison yeah. and I think Crowley managed to really throw in as much as he possibly could into each individual card mm -hmm. and each one is just this um, this hotbed of visual imagery that's very stirring and while one may have you know issues with um, his interpretations he, he wrote a companion book or the book of Thoth um, to kind of explain what those symbolisms embody uh, or what that symbolism embodies um, well, may have uh, issues with that. I think I think that would be very very silly to stay away from such a, a wonderful creation as the Thoth Tarot deck. Yeah, I mean, he definitely added some flair where the uh, the Rider Waite decks, for example, that definitely didn't have any plastic in its own right. Um, mm. But but only because it's for so long been viewed as the traditional Tarot deck when mm -hmm. it itself was only the creation of one of the Golden Dawn's ritual magicians, A.E. Waite. Um, yeah. 
Okay. Well, the I guess the uh, the last thing we should look at to uh, before we kind of let you go and then have you back in a few weeks, I guess, is uh, the uh, I guess some of the practices. I and mean, we we spoke about them briefly earlier on, which is the I guess Kabbalah or Kabbalah, depending on which way you mm-hmm. pronounce it, and the Tree of Life. I believe you have a T-shirt of the Tree of Life. <laughs> I do. I'm not wearing it today, um, but uh, I, I thought about it. Um, <laughs> yes, the Kabbalah um, or the Kabbalah. Yeah, my friend Mark's going to get on me for pronouncing it in the. Um, like a white boy. Um, <laughs> so the Kabbalah um, is this um, a system that um, was very much uh, the domain of a, of a specific religious and philosophical system, uh, namely esoteric uh, Judaism. Um, and it itself is only a couple hundred years old, um, as best we can tell, um, or well, possibly a bit, a bit earlier. But it... Uh, it's often claimed to extend all the way back to uh, Moses being the um, the originator of the Kabbalah system, and it has its mythical roots as well. Um, and there were definitely um, certain traditions within esoteric uh, Judaism which were kind of predecessors to the Kabbalah. Um, but uh, in it, at its core, it is this idea that um, there is value to um, taking the the bull by the horns as it were um of one's own religious experience and um kind of looking or attempting to um become closer to god on personal terms and the um there is a very elaborate system of doing so which has arisen over um uh, over hundreds of years um the basic idea though is that reality is um structured um with our physical world Um, being at kind of one end of a spectrum and the unity and purity of God being at a, at the opposite end and that there are numerous worlds or, um, symbolic, um, manifestations that lie between this world and that world of purity and unity. Um, and that one can through certain meditational techniques or the permutations of the, the Hebrew letters or the meditations on the archangelic forces, one can, move through these domains in a, a very classical, a very, um, very hermetic idea. One can kind of um, delve deeper into these symbolic realms and become closer to God, and in doing so acquire strange and wondrous, miraculous powers similar to the prophets of the Old Testament. Mm. And with the Tree of Life, I mean, this is something that's, this isn't something exclusive to, say, uh, the Golden Dawn, is it? This is something that's been around for quite a long time. Absolutely. Um, yes, we have, we have uh, the, the Tree of Life, appears um, not, not only in um, traditional um, texts of, of the, um, the magical practitioners of um, communities of, um, of Jews, but also um, it appears in certain Arabic alchemical texts. It was viewed as a very interesting uh, symbol and idea um, back in, in the days of um, where or the great uh, storehouse of Western occult knowledge was in fact um, safely stowed away in the Holy Land before the Crusades, um, and many of the uh, the classics of magic in, in those days were written um, from a, a more Islamic um, esoteric worldview. But they integrated um, that that Tree of Life uh, symbolism in many ways. It it appeared again later as a symbol in alchemy, um, and only relatively recently um, did it kind of enter into the corpus of almost every magical tradition in some way has some diagram of reality um, that is 
uh, in some ways going to be somewhat reflective of the tree of life. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess I, the other thing to ask about, which I think kind of goes hand in hand with what we've just been talking about, really, is magical record or, you know, keeping a magical diary. This seems to be uh, something that is equally as important to a magician. Would you agree with that? I, w- I would agree with that, um, though, though throwing out the t- caveat that I <clears throat> completely acknowledge how obnoxious it is to keep a, um, an incredibly um, extensive record of one's own magical work. Um, there, are, there are different aspects that go into being a magician, and one of them, of course, is imagination and creativity. Um, one of them is knowledge and insight and the desire to um, delve into the, the boldness and daring to delve into domains that are sometimes scary or... Um, at least very um, powerful. And then there's the other aspect, which is discipline and hard work um, and a certain, uh, and this is the scientific aspect, the scientific rigor of investigation and of keeping good notes. Um, Because the magician early on acknowledges um, that memory is fallible and flexible and reality can be um, overwritten very quickly, um, especially when one is performing um, rituals that could very easily be construed as wish fulfillment. Um, We often... Um, ignore the negatives and uh, have kind of a confirmation bias on the positives where we want our magical ritual to work as we imagined it. And so we can kind of rewrite um, the way we experienced it um, to kind of make ourselves feel better. And I think that's the ultimate uh, benefit of the uh, the magical journal. It keeps us in check. Um, it allows us to look back and say, ah, okay, on this day I did this thing. I performed this ritual. I attempted to communicate with the spirit. My success was... Oh, right here. I, I wrote it down. I wrote exactly what I experienced and not what I would like to believe I experienced. Yeah. Um, that and, of course, it, it provides um, for the possibility as yet um, fully unexplored um, of creating a body of knowledge that can be shared between magicians of this is my life's work. These are all of the experiments that I performed in this field of um, human experience that is at the far range of what we consider possible. Um, these are my explorations into this unknown and un- and, and possibly um, unknowable um, dimension, and this is my experience of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think that would be the the grander aspect of it, not just to keep ourselves in check, but also as a contribution to future generations of magicians um, and saying, "Ah, here, um, this this is this is everything I have ever done. Um, look at look at the wheels I invented, and see if there isn't a better wheel that you could invent." Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so we've armed our uh, our listeners now with the kind of some basic knowledge of uh, the, the practices and the uh, techniques, I guess, of magic. I guess the next thing to do is, what would you recommend as a kind of good reading material for uh, any would-be magician? There are um, there are many texts that, that I consider very fundamental to to the development of my magical worldview, um, either inspirationally or in terms of actually this this is a book that will teach you techniques which are useful. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, the um, the magicians of the um, the 70s and 80s that were working in this uh, kind of new emergent um, uh, worldview that was um, kind of, for lack of a better term, called chaos magic. Um, and some of the luminaries of that magical age, um, Phil Hine and Peter J. Carroll, um, wrote uh, great uh, attempts to kind of demystify magic and make it very immediate. Um, and something that one can just jump into and that one should embrace um, as a, a lifestyle. Um, and their works, um, Peter J. Carroll's um, Psychonaut, Liber Null, Liber Chaos, 
um, are classics that I would suggest to anybody pick up, um, if only because they can uh, really impress um, how um, how accessible magic can be, and that one doesn't have to engage in years of apprenticeship to a grand high wizard um, to uh, really uh, become magically potent. Um, there are, of course, uh, classics of Aleister Crowley, the wickedest man in the world, um, <laughs> and certainly one of the great last giants of magic. Hmm. Um, he's often viewed as inaccessible or pompous or overly intellectual, which, of course, he is. Um, but this doesn't discredit the incredible value of his works, uh, works like Magic in Theory and Practice or Magic Without Tears, um, which are... Um, really foundational in their in their presentation of magic as a consistent theoretical system that um, has uh, certain precepts, certain assumptions inherent to them, and that um, these assumptions can be really grasped. And the um, he presents kind of these core beliefs that inform a magical worldview in very dry and intellectual and sometimes very funny language. Mm, yeah, he's quite. I think a lot of people forget to sort of mention that with Crowley that he's actually quite got quite a good sense of humor it's very easy to think that he's laughing at you um, <laughs> but uh, and he probably to a certain degree is and he certainly uh, puts in a few um, kind of MacGuffins to to kind of trip up the uh, the unwary but as long as one is is constantly on the lookout for for old Al's uh, bag of tricks um, <laughs> one can really appreciate the the the, the biting humor um, that he had Hmm. Well, what about some of the kind of more recent, not necessarily, I guess, directly magical texts, but I mean, we have people like Robert Anton Wilson who've uh, written books such as like you know, Prometheus Rising. Would you recommend that as a good? So glad you brought that up. Yeah, I, I absolutely extort people to uh, to <laughs> really get into um, into Wilson. I think he um, presents one of the most dynamic and useful modern worldviews um, that is completely friendly um, to the possibilities um, explored and put forth in magic. And certainly uh, quantum psychology and Prometheus Rising mm -hmm. are incredible resources for kind of deprogramming yourself from the idea that magic is impossible, mm -hmm. um, or rather um, by Im <clears throat> and impressing uh, upon your mind the flexibility um, that he... Uh, he believes is so necessary to our survival, the ability to deal with apparently contradictory worldviews and integrate them into something more robust and healthy. Um, I think uh, I think you could do much worse than than getting really into Robert Anton Wilson before one gets into um, perhaps um, stranger avenues of magical investigation. Hmm. Um, there are other there are other authors that I think are very instructive. Um, Isaac Bonowitz um, was very popular for a while among uh, Wiccans and, and neo-pagans. Um, he himself being um, a very strong proponent of the new reformed druids of North America. Yeah, didn't he um, start a uh, he um, to kind of get out of having to go to prayer meetings on Sunday? I think at university he started the Dru druidic uh, society, didn't he? I think. Indeed, indeed, and it's 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 got that kind of tongue-in-cheek um, approach to magical um, practice that. I think magic is uh, the magical practitioners are prone to forgetting is so important um, that he can at least laugh at himself. But he presents a, a fantastic exploration of the idea that um, the evangelical preachers' um, prayers and the parapsychologists' attempts to um, 
investigate uh, psychokinesis and the uh, druids' attempts to bring about a magical effect within a magical circle are all really working on the same basic fundamental principles, but they're applying different models to explain how they're happening. Mm-hmm. And I think he really he, he, he kind of fleshes out how um, the ontological flexibility that Robert Anton Wilson kind of puts forth can be integrated into actual magical practice. Yeah. Now, I guess uh, in the States, you guys have a, um, a series of festivals. I can't really think of like a huge amount of them over here, but there's one particular one called Starwood, I think, over there in the, in the US. Have you ever been to that? I've never been to Starwood, um, to, my, to my shame. Um, but yes, um, well, I, I know at least uh, once a year, a bunch of uh, crazy druids gather uh, around Stonehenge um, and, and often get the police called on them. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, over here, we've, uh, there's, there's a, a relatively strong grassroots neo-pagan movement that, that hosts these, um, these kind of celebratory devotional festivals um, where people from all walks of life and all um, levels of knowledge and awareness um, can kind of come together and um, really hang out in a way that is, is very difficult, even in this, um, in this age of connectivity and, and global access to information. It's still very hard to find a large group of people that share at least sympathetic worldviews um, with something as strange as magic and magical practice. Um, but yeah, there, there are many uh, festivals occurring, um, at least at the eight um, uh, Wiccan sabbats um, scattered around the year um, that one can just drive out to a little local campground and hang out with three or four hundred Wiccans for a weekend <laughs> and see see all the uh, the, the beautiful neo-pagans um, and, and other neo-pagans in various states of disarray or disrobe <laughs> um, performing magical rituals. It can be really quite, um, quite, eye-op- uh, quite eye-opening and mind-opening um, to the variety um, that, of, of people that can get interested in magical practice i think there's another one in the uk actually that's just i've just remembered uh, I, i've just never gone uh, because of the name it's a witch fest <laughs> as it's known here but uh yeah that always kind of puts me off a little bit i think yeah, that's uh, understandable there's there's a certain lack of self-awareness there i think um in in the choosing of one's um choosing of one's name i, I think that was a, a big problem for neo-paganism and magical practitioners in general for a while was this inability to view um, the idea that uh, names like uh, Starwood and Witchfest and Dragon Hills and the convocation of the High Druids of Avalon is is ultimately very cheesy. Um, <laughs> not to say that, that one should not um, embrace cheesiness and hokiness <laughs> as a, a, a powerful tool, but if one expects to be taken seriously, one should expect a certain amount of flack um, for unabashedly um, calling yourself um, corn lady woman um, walks with deer and expecting to be taken fully seriously. Okay, so if we were addressing uh, one of our listeners as someone that had never approached magic before, what would kind of, um, that's what we've been kind of doing for the episode. What would you, uh, what would your take home message be for the listeners uh, that, you know, are thinking of uh, sort of uh, exploring magic for the first time? That's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think at the <laughs> end eventually. of the day, um, the, the purpose of magic um, is, is empowerment. Um, and um, more than anything else, I think um, the practice and pursuit of magic is important um, in that it, it encourages drastic and radical knowledge of uh, the self and of the exploration of one's own potentials, even if they're mundane ones. It's the idea that one can break through limiting beliefs 
um, even limiting beliefs about reality and uh, one's own place within it. Um, and I think everybody um, can kind of uh, sympathize with that feeling of wanting more control over one's own life, more fun, more freedom, uh, more power. Um, and that that's not something to be afraid of. Your own desire to master yourself, master your mind, have control over your emotions, over um, your, um, your, your economic success even. Um, but even deeper than that, mastering one's own mind and one's own thoughts. Um, these are practices that are fundamental to the successful practice of magic. And even if you never perform or cast a spell that um, has an external physical effect in the world in any meaningful, um, observable, scientifically measurable way, the amount of good that can arise from investigating the limits of one, uh, one's own potentials. Um, one can't, you, you can't really put uh, a, quali a quantitative value on that. It is, it's transcendental. It's, um, it's something that is fundamental to our desires as human beings to know ourselves and to know our world and our place in the world. And magic is all about grasping at that. And it's the, the age-old rule of thumb techniques for achieving that knowledge and that power. Oh, thanks a lot, Austin. I've really enjoyed this. Um, we're definitely going to have you on uh, soon again. I think uh, it would be interesting to maybe look at some of the kind of uh, some of the the key works maybe of magic, and uh, you know maybe have an episode about that. Yeah, some of the I, I think a little focus on some of the specific movements would be uh, very instructive. And yeah, a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, uh, yeah. Again, thanks for doing this, and um, yeah, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ken. Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad King. This Week in Tech. Warren Town Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Exit 50. This and That with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on Psychiatry. Web Hosting Show. Merlin from Berlin. Random Cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to Do Stuff. <laughs> Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory.
Okay, that was Kid 606 with the track The Illness from the album Kill Sound Before Sound Kills You. Um, you can check that track out for free, download it for free rather, at Southern Records' uh, website, which is www.southern.net. Uh, if you just search for Kid 606 and that album, you'll find the track to download. Um, okay, and thanks also to Austin for doing the interview of us. Really great guest. Um, really, a really great asset to, you know, I think the subject of magic personally I think he should perhaps think about doing his own show or uh, you know some kind of audio projects I think he's got a really great way of kind of processing information and regurgitating it to the listener so that's always good uh, right coming up next week we're hoping to have an interview with um, someone from the Center for Center for Fortean Zoology um, <laughs> uh, zoology cryptozoology rather something that we haven't really looked at yet on the show but it's you know it's one of the kind of <laughs> the uh, wholesome subjects that you encounter when looking at these kind of weirder uh, countercultural, undergroundy, paranormal kind of uh, subjects and we haven't covered it yet and we're almost at episode 20 so we should probably get it done before then um, <clears throat> yeah so basically um, if you want to get in contact with me you can email me at ken at sittingnow.co.uk um, obviously check out the website which is sittingnow.co.uk or com and in which, yeah, whichever one they both go to the same place uh, if you've we're, at the moment, we're looking for some contributors to the site. Um, yeah, it could be anything from you know articles uh, to some audio projects. Even we're um, you know we've always kind of tried to encourage our listeners to contribute to the to the uh, the website or the show in any way they feel fit. So obviously, just send us some examples of your work to kenatsittingnow.co.uk. Um, if you want to send some news that you feel Claire should read out, uh, we've got our own little email account now, which is uh, wwn. Uh, at sittingnow.co.uk or you can just email her directly as she said earlier on at claire at sittingnow.co.uk got getting bored of saying that but one other thing we've uh, we're going to try and ask all of you guys to do for us <coughs> which should only take a really small amount of time is that if you get our show through iTunes what we'd really really like you to do is to go onto the um, actual page on iTunes for our, for our show which you can get by clicking the subscribe to iTunes link uh, on the front page and just giving us a review because basically the way iTunes appears to work is the more reviews you have the more likely you are to be picked up when the search is done you know for the kind of shows you're looking for 
and you know we don't charge for the site or anything like that that we, we never will <laughs> um so if you you know if you have like a spare two or three minutes it would do us a great service if you could just go onto the um onto the page and you just fill in um there's like a form you fill in and you just write a little review and you, you know you give us five stars i mean come on <laughs> i'm just kidding give us whatever stars you want um but you know the more the more reviews we get and the, you know the better the reviews we get i guess the easier it is for people to find us you know and for us to get new listeners so i think that's just you know if you do have the time it'll be great and uh, but yeah anyway i'm waffling again so <laughs> i'm gonna leave you guys and we shall reconvene at the same time next week thanks for listening and you know review us <laughs> please